After meeting with Dr. Vogelsang, we started the case discussions, beginning with a patient from Dr. Harwin. This is a 59-year-old man who presented to a podiatrist with pain in his right foot. MRI showed a destructive 4.5 centimeter and maximum diameter lesion involving the third metatarsal bone. The podiatrist performed a biopsy that showed clear cell carcinoma. The patient was referred to me for consultation. I ordered CT scans of his body, which showed a 6.6 centimeter mass in the left kidney, but no other sites of disease. Can you talk a little bit about the man himself? Did he have any symptoms other than what was going on with his foot? He'd had pain in his foot, and it had preceded this diagnosis you know, for a number of months. Otherwise perfectly healthy? Otherwise perfectly healthy, worked as an engineer. So Dr. Vogel saying we have a man presenting with metastatic disease, not uncommon. Can you talk through how you sort through this and what you'd be thinking about in this 59-year-old man? Sure. So the average number of patients who present with metastatic disease has been pretty stagnant over all these years. It's still between 20 and 30 percent will walk in the door with metastatic disease. It's an asymptomatic tumor in the majority of patients. So the first thing you want to do is know what his metastatic burden is. And obviously, you want to see the CT scans. Maybe I can interrupt and say, what did his staging show? The bone metastasis or apparent bone metastasis to his foot was the only site other than the mass in the kidney. What specific screening tests would you want in this situation, Dr. Bogelson? Well, I only do a CT scan, chest, abdomen, pelvis, and a bone scan. Ron's looked at PET scans. I don't think you've found any value to PET scans. Dr. Bukowski? I agree. For staging purposes, no, we don't use them. We looked at them as a way to determine whether you could find occult disease and, if you could, what the exact size was. And it became clear that with pulmonary metastases that you could not detect them sometimes when they were a centimeter to a centimeter and a half with PET scans. And so they don't seem that valuable in our practice. Dr. Dutcher? The disease just isn't growing fast enough in the majority of patients that they're PET avid. I've clearly had biopsied tumors that were renal cell cancer and the PET scan was completely negative. Okay, good input. So again, how would you think through this case? So there's no need for a head CT, at least not except on protocol situations. So you don't need to do a brain MRI. And the first thing you think about is a nephrectomy. The standard approach is nephrectomy. You also have to start thinking about managing his solitary metastasis, apparent solitary metastasis. As Dean Hellman or Sam Hellman at University of Chicago used to say, an oligometastasis patient with just a several number of metastases almost certainly should be resected or at least offer definitive opportunities for cure. Some of these oligometastases may be embolic or thrombotic. Literally, a tumor thrombus may have broken off. I don't know how it would get into the artery to get that low, but that would be the thinking to start with, nephrectomy and definitive local control. Dr. Dutcher, what do we know about the effect of removing a primary in terms of its effect on metastatic disease? Well, that's always the hope that, in fact, you remove the primary and you get some effect on metastatic disease. Initially, it was thought that it was some kind of an immune surveillance effect, but there's also some thought now that perhaps the primary is a source of high levels of VEGF. And as you remove a growth factor effect, you might, in fact, have a spontaneous regression. But I think of those of us that see a lot of kidney cancer, spontaneous regression is maybe 1 in 20 years. So I wouldn't wait for it. I got two. Two in 20 years. So I agree with Nick that if you have a solitary site of metastatic disease, I would strongly consider surgery. 
Dr. Bukowski? I would do a head scan on all these people. I just do it routinely. I'm not sure that's right or wrong. I think there's a very small incidence of occult CNS metastases that you find in the patient who presents with metastatic disease. So we'll do it at baseline, probably more just to have that information for future because the frequency then increases considerably. I think if you're going to do surgery in this particular patient, let's assume his CNS is fine, then you're looking at a way to perform nephrectomy. And I think the urologic community out there is with increasing frequency doing minimally invasive procedures right now. And in this gentleman, 59, he probably could tolerate an open nephrectomy, but the laparoscopic approach is much easier for the patient to get through. They recover more rapidly. So that's our preference. In the setting of metastatic disease, unless there's a compelling reason where you want to resect the retroperitoneal lymph nodes, this would be the way to do it. I wanted Bill to present this case just to kind of get us in the mood of the fact that renal cell carcinoma is different than other solid tumors. And Bill, can you just sort of fast forward with this man up into the present? After the diagnosis, then in July of 2002, on the same day, he underwent a radical resection of the right foot or third ray amputation and a left-hand-assisted laparoscopic left radical nephrectomy. A week after surgery, he required an exploration of the deep right foot wound with evacuation of a large hematoma. He then received postoperative radiation therapy to the foot 56 gray, completed in October of 2002. He did well until February of 2005 when he, on screening CAT scans, was found to have the left adrenal mass and he underwent a left adrenalectomy for further resection of metastatic disease. So obviously that was the only site of disease at that point? Correct. Nick, any comments? No, it's one of those standard approaches. You do it and you hope that don't come back, but I think the studies suggest that even when you resect all disease, only about 10 or 15% will actually stay disease-free. I'm just going to postpone the issue of systemic therapy in the NED situation until we get to the other cases, but do you want to continue? So later screening CAT scans, the end of 2005, showed a right adrenal mass, 3.3 centimeters, and on December 29th of 2005, he underwent a hand-assisted laparoscopic right adrenalectomy. Pathology revealed a 3-centimeter metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Margins were negative. Because the urological oncologist felt the tumor was near or stuck to the liver, he referred him for radiation, and he was treated with some post-op IMRT, completed this past March 17th. Last month, an MRI of the abdomen showed no evidence of disease, and he continues to do well in the absence of any systemic therapy. So it's now been almost four years since he presented with metastatic disease and has been treated primarily with surgery. Dr. Bukowski, any comments on this case? No, I think this, fortunately or unfortunately, is pretty typical for patients with renal cancer. He had clear cell carcinoma, I assume, and resection of disease periodically is sometimes the way to manage the disease. I mean, I think this has been shown over the years. Now, he's not cured. He's likely to come back with disease in the future, and you're doing surveillance for that particular purpose, but I don't have anything better than surgical removal of disease in order to control disease in this particular setting. That's our approach. Dr. Dutcher, do we know anything about the biology of these tumors as opposed to tumors that are more aggressive? Well, what we know about the aggressive tumors is they tend to have more aggressive histology right from the beginning under the microscope. I mean, there probably are a number of genetic pathways that are activated that we haven't defined yet. But, for example, the sarcomatoid variant where the histology is really quite different and looks like sarcoma far more aggressive with a far shorter median survival expected. But this kind of patient where there's one tumor and then a year later, two years later, there's another tumor. I've seen people actually who've gone 20, 30 years with just surgical resections one after another, you know, long before there was much systemic therapy available. So I think it is a strange disease and you individualize 
by the patient and by the patient's own natural history of how they're behaving. I mean, if he had come back with four or five meds, obviously we'd be having a different discussion. I would bet that this patient has an extremely well-differentiated clear cell, probably a grade one or two, and will likely continue to behave like that. Why he has metastatic disease when the majority of well-differentiated clear cells do not metastasize is unknown. Becky Furman and Juan Rosai at the University of Minnesota sort of intuited this in the 70s that clear cell came in these different garden varieties and showed a pretty different prognosis. That's been repeatedly confirmed for a grade. It's been incorporated into the UCLA system and other systems. So the reason for that is probably that these are the tumors that are most likely just purely VHL mutated. They have a specific behavioral pattern programmed into them, probably with not a lot of secondary mutations. Although a lot of that stuff we don't know, we infer And it's the same with the VHL syndrome. Most of the tumors that develop in the VHL syndrome are very well differentiated and clear cells. So this seems to be the pure, if you will, the purest of the VHL clear cell syndrome type of cancers. Keeping in mind that we are talking to an audience of busy practitioners who like to focus on what's clinically important, but let's explore a little bit about the VHL gene and some of the biology of renal cell cancer and how that relates to some of these new agents that we're hearing so much exciting data about. Dr. Dutcher, can you talk a little bit about what we understand about that? The VHL gene is thought to be a tumor suppressor gene that is part and parcel of the inherited von Hippel-Lindau syndrome that develops a number of different tumors, including kidney cancer. But interestingly, from the point of view of sporadic renal cell, the type of kidney cancer that we see with the big tumor, not the multiple little tumors, about anywhere in some series from 70 to 80% of people have also inactivation of this gene by methylation or mutation. So it seems to be part of sporadic renal cell. And what that means is that you lose control over the hypoxia-inducible factors. They're upregulated, and you end up with a cascade that leads to stimulation of vascular endothelial growth factor and enhanced angiogenesis. And it's thought that by losing control from this gene, the angiogenesis pathway is constitutively on, and thus the tumors are growing. And so all of the drugs that have been presented in some part affect that pathway and inhibit the angiogenesis pathway. Dr. Pukowski, can you go through a little bit about these agents and sort of where they work and the pattern that Dr. Dutcher just described? Janice described the biology of the VHL protein and how it complexes with a series of other proteins and then ubiquinates HIF and then ultimately HIF's degraded. When HIF's not degraded, you have these factors that are upregulated, both genes and growth factors. The drugs that we now are looking at as potentially useful are bevacizumab, which really directly binds a growth factor, vascular endothelial growth factor, and complexes with it and prevents its ligation to the receptor. All growth factors have to ligate receptors in order to induce signaling and cascades that ultimately lead to the effects of their ligation. So the other way of inhibiting the effects of these factors is to inhibit the receptor. You can do that with an antibody. Right now, we don't have an antibody that we can use, although there are some entering clinical trials. We're utilizing small molecule inhibitors of tyrosine phosphorylation predominantly. The two that received the most attention at this meeting were serafinib and sunitinib. And the last one is a drug called CCI779, which inhibits mTOR by a slightly different mechanism in terms of how it inhibits the HIF pathway. So we've got three sort of alternatives, if you will, of different mechanisms that can result in inhibition of 
this pathway, which we refer to as the VEGF pathway in general. But there are other, clearly other factors like platelet-derived growth factor that play a role here. So Dr. Vogel saying for the busy practitioner in practice, could we summarize it just by saying angiogenesis is important in clear cell carcinoma of the kidney? Yeah, I think most of us learned that in residency and that when you cut into a kidney tumor, it bleeds a lot. And the ultimate cause was found to be the Van Hippel-Lindau and ultimately the upregulated HIF and the 200-plus genes that HIF regulates. We're going to focus... You must have been a resident later than I was because we didn't know about angiogenesis when All I was a resident. All we knew was they bled. But, but, I, but I'm impressed about <laughs> this. No, I remember distinctly because it was an orthopedic surgeon who said we had to replace this hip. He said, you've got to be very careful. They could almost bleed out during the surgeries. Right. But that was about it. That's about all we knew. They were bloody. Well, we actually do have a case of collecting duct carcinoma, papillary carcinoma, but I think we're probably not going to get to it. But Dr. Dutcher, what percent overall of these tumors are non-clear cell? Are the same mechanisms involved? About 75% of renal cell tumors are clear cell, and the others are not in surgical series. Papillary is about 10 to 15%. Collecting ducts about 5%. And then there's some other variants, medullary and chromophobe. We do not think that they are as dependent upon the VEGF pathway as the other subtypes, although we don't want to be too smart and say that you can't use anti-angiogenesis agents in conjunction with treatment of those diseases somehow, but we don't know yet how to do that. But bottom line is that they're not primarily stimulated by VHL, and in fact don't have VHL mutations for the most part. And so we tend to look at other types of treatments that might affect their growth. How often do you see overlap between the histologic features? You'll see some clear cell and some papillary. Well, there's papillary, except at very special, very big places that do a lot of their primary pathology, like Cleveland Clinic or Sloan Kettering or the NIH. Pathologists are not really distinguishing. So there's a thing called clear cell with papillary features, and it just depends on how closely they want to look for the little vascular bundle that the papilla is supposed to be around, which is supposed to define true papillary. Otherwise, it's fronds of cells called papillary features. And truly, when we get a lot of referral cases that have already had surgery, and the pathology reports do not yet distinguish between subtypes, and there's a lot of mixed. And we don't know whether those are really mixed Or are they clear cell with papillary features, or are we being too much of a splitter? Do you make a therapeutic difference between those mixed ones versus a clear cell, in the practical sense, versus practitioners? I had a patient with papillary carcinoma could never get any of the trials. I don't think anyone even knows if these new drugs work. But I think what you folks are referring to is the fact that sometimes you get a report that says clear cell carcinoma with papillary features or some such thing, and and that's a clear cell carcinoma, generally speaking, and we treat it accordingly. The same with sarcomatoid. Most of the sarcomatoid tumors are clear cell just because of the frequency of clear cell cancer. They're going to be clear cell. Now, you can't have papillary tumors that are sarcomatoid also, but just the frequency of clear cell cancer makes that the case. Now, the alternative is you could look at the individual genotype of each one of these tumors. It's time-consuming, difficult. There are companies that do that right now. We don't do it routinely. We do it more as a research tool than anything else at this point in time. Just as a follow-up to this case, I'm curious what it's been like taking care of this man, Bill, who presented with metastatic disease and now is living a normal quality of life still four years later after these surgeries. The patient still goes to work every day. He has a little bit of a disability from his foot, but he can play golf and he can still do most normal activities. The other thing that I didn't mention, if you think about it, you know, he's had both adrenals 
out, so he became adrenal insufficient, so he's on replacement therapy. Interesting. Any crises or illnesses that you had to deal with that were problems? No, because the urologist knew his endocrinology was seeing him during the time of his surgery. When you see these patients who are presenting with a single met like this, anything that you're looking for to try to give you a clue whether it's going to be more prolonged course versus more aggressive? Well, I think Nick touched on that, and that is differentiation because the Furman grade does influence this. The issue with Furman grade is its reproducibility. Sometimes from pathologist to pathologist, it will vary, but it is an important issue that they should read into it. And many times in the community, you'll just get poorly differentiated or some such thing. So it is a relevant thing to have. And most of these patients who have indolent courses with long disease-free intervals generally have grade one and two tumors. Not always, but generally have that. They're just slow growing. They spread much more slowly and recur at a much slower pace. I think it's important to note that Furman grade is nuclear grade, so it's looking at the nucleus, but Furman grade only applies to clear cell. You'll get very bizarre nuclear grades if you try to do Furman grade for papillary, and it doesn't, it's not the same thing. Okay, let's go on to Dr. Henderson's case. This 63-year-old man retired from a utility company and was on a weekend riding his motorcycle in North Georgia when he wiped out had an accident, was taken by ambulance to a nearby hospital and shipped down to Atlanta. And in addition to leaving a lot of skin on the road, he had a lot of contusions. And so they obtained CT scans of his chest and abdomen and pelvis and found a solitary mass in his right kidney that was asymptomatic. He at that time underwent nephrectomy in April of 2004, which showed a 4.8 by 4.1 centimeter clear cell carcinoma with negative nodes and no invasion of the capsule, a moderately differentiated clear cell carcinoma, but did have microscopic invasion of the renal vein. Post-op, he was followed up every three to four months with CT scans and bone scans. And in November of 2004, he was found to have bilateral lung nodules measuring just over a centimeter and a right paratracheal lymph node. And what was his condition at that point? He was nervous ever since he had his kidney removed. Very, very anxious, nervous, somewhat depressed guy. Worried he was going to die of kidney cancer, and I couldn't reassure him otherwise. So he was walking worried well, otherwise asymptomatic. Before we get into the management metastatic disease, Dr. Vogel saying, how often are we seeing patients like this who are getting scans for some other purpose and have an incidental primary picked up now compared to in the past? It is increasing, although it's hard to be certain. Generally, the incidentally detected tumors are less than five centimeters, and yours fits that criteria. Usually patients become symptomatic at around the five to seven centimeter mark. The average size of a symptomatic tumor is about seven centimeters. This guy is obviously right at that metastatic margin and you picked it up early, but not early enough. And Dr. Bukowski, how would you think through today as opposed to maybe a couple days ago or a year or two ago, the approach to the patient at this point? So he presents back with pulmonary nodules after a disease interval that was free of about, what, a year? It was about seven months. So he falls into a category of patients where the disease pace is pretty rapid. He comes back after a short period of time. Even though it's a small tumor, four to five centimeters is small as far as kidney cancers go, his disease is moving at a pace that we would not like to see. I would assume that you would stage him then and look for other sites of disease, yes. plus the lung, and from what you said, there weren't any other sites that were apparent, That's correct. including bone and abdomen. And I think we even got brain at that point, imaging, and it was negative. Excellent. <laughs> I like that. We're putting him on a trial, so we right, had to do it. put him on a trial. So I think the data we heard at the meetings the past three days clearly 
define for us the kinds of approaches that we have available at the moment, then one sort of sticks out and jumps out at you, and that's the plenary paper presented by Dr. Bob Mocher, Sunitinib, as an initial treatment for patients with this kind of disease. He has clear cell cancer. The tyrosine kinase inhibitors, whether it's sunitinib or serafinib, are going to assume an ever-increasing role in the management of this disease up front outside of a protocol. And I think this kind of individual would be the case. I don't know that you have to do anything else in terms of biopsy. His disease recurred quite rapidly. So I think you're left with a decision about which the best drug to treat him with would be. I think we can say we've buried interferon as initial treatment for this disease. I don't think that's legitimate. I personally have buried interleukin-2, although my colleague may not feel the same. But I have buried it also, and I think we're in an era now where, although we can't cure the disease with these drugs, we're certainly going to be managing it in a different fashion with these newer drugs. Can you summarize what the trial demonstrated? That study compared interferon with sunitinib in patients with untreated metastatic clear cell carcinoma of the kidney. It was a large trial of randomized 750 patients to treatment with one or the other. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival. And the difference that emerged were twofold. One, in response rates. Patients with interferon had a regression rate of about 6%, and with sunitinib, anywhere between 30 and 40%, whether it was investigator or secondary assessment by independent radiology review. So patients respond much more frequently, but that's not the critical issue. I think response, although it's an interesting issue, is not what we look at now in this disease. We look at disease control, such as delay of progression and or survival. And he presented the progression-free survival data, which demonstrated that for interferon, the median progression-free survival was six months, and for patients receiving sunitinib, it's 11 months, so approximately a doubling of progression-free survival. That's a pretty dramatic difference in terms of delay of progression. The issue with these drugs, sunitinib included, is that we don't see very frequently complete regressions. These are generally partial regressions, and when you look at all patients who are treated with this drug, somewhere around 70% will have some decrease in the size of their tumor. So a fairly substantial number have that. And the duration of those responses is going to last somewhere between 6 to 12 months. So pretty substantial proportion have a long response. So I think what we've defined is clearly a new approach to the treatment of the disease. Now the other tyrosine kinase inhibitors, serafinib, we don't have that kind of data as yet. So we don't know what those data will be in first-line therapy. I suspect they will be similar. We don't know because it has also a very dramatic effect in cytokine refractory patients. But Right now, we just don't have enough information to recommend it unequivocally in first line, although I think the toxicity profiles, as they ultimately play out, will sort of dictate how you use these drugs and which drug you use preferentially and such in this setting. Dr. Dutcher, agree, disagree, or in between? Well, I disagree. I still think interleukin-2 has a role in treating kidney cancer. I don't know if this particular person would be a good candidate for it, but the people that we've seen that seem to have the long-term survivals and the long-term responses with IL-2 are people with lung-only disease. There are some pathological features that we can't clearly standardize as yet that we're trying to define under the microscope as people whose disease would be most amenable to treatment, including CA9 staining, including some histologic features, absence of granular histology, things like that. So I would at least have the conversation that there is a treatment that in a small percentage of people will produce long-term disease-free survival, meaning decades. As far as the TKIs, I think the issue here is you've got an asymptomatic man who feels well and you're going to put him on chronic therapy. So the question to me is not what, but when. 
And do you need two points on the curve, or do you think that because there's a seven-month interval, it's time to start some treatment right now? He did obviously have a chest CT when he first presented, so you know that there's some growth. But I don't perceive these drugs as being very different. I think that about 70% of people have some benefit. And is it longer with one than the other? We don't have first-line data to compare, so I don't think we know the answer. What's your take on the side effects and toxicity profile of the two TKIs? Well, my sense is that with sunitinib, there's a much more dramatic hypertension and it comes on rather quickly. I've had cytopenias so that the four-week-on-two-week-off cycle is necessary in a lot of people. With serafinib, the hand-foot syndrome is really annoying to people, as well as the rash, and we're learning to be dermatologists by providing creams and cocktails and things for them. There's no free lunch. These are, you know, but they're manageable. They're certainly much more manageable than interferon. So overall quality of life in terms of one drug versus the other, you're saying they're about equal or one easier than the other? You know, it's, each person is so different. I think they're probably about the same. Dr. Bukowski, how would you answer that question? Yeah, I don't think they're the same. I think that the toxicities of sunitinib really are much more difficult at times to manage. I mean, there are toxicities that we're still learning about that we don't truly understand their causes, such as hypothyroidism that occurs in a substantial number of patients taking this drug. So I think the long-term toxicity of sunitinib is yet to be determined. I certainly can't disagree that continued observation of this fellow would be another option, but I think given the fact he recurred so rapidly, I would offer him therapy. And do we mention IL-2 to all of our patients? We do, and when they want it, then we send them to you. But I try to, I try to talk them out of it if I can. Just to pick up briefly on the hypothyroidism, how often does it occur? Is it clinically relevant? Now, the data that we have was in a group of patients on various clinical trials with sunitinib. The frequency we found was about 20% of patients have clinically important hypothyroidism as evidenced by increases in their TSH and decreases in their T4 levels requiring thyroid replacement. About half of that group improve the fatigue that's associated with sunitinib when you replace thyroid. So I've told people who ask me, I don't know that you will screen necessarily for thyroid abnormalities, but certainly when patients began to develop these symptoms of fatigue, and that occurs in the vast majority of people who take this drug, you start to wonder whether hypothyroidism can be playing a role, and you should look at it at that point. 20% is not an insignificant number. When do you generally see it? The frequency is somewhere around the 8th to the 12th week is when you start to see these abnormalities come in, and some of them will develop slowly. And the question we've asked ourselves is, when the patient stops sunitinib, because they all stop it at some point, will these revert? Will their hypothyroidism disappear? I don't know the answer to that at this point. I think that's an interesting question. And what's even more interesting is why they develop the hypothyroidism. Is it a vascular effect in the thyroid? Is it another kinase on thyroid cells themselves that's affected here that produces this? These are unanswered questions. Well, the interesting component is that both of those drugs have an anti-tumor effect on papillary thyroid cancer. And C-RED is the oncogene for thyroid cancer, and it is a tyrosine kinase. So you wonder whether is effect. In fact, I know serafinib folks are looking at serafinib as a therapy for metastatic thyroid cancer. It does call, in my mind, into question this whole issue of excluding papillary, because papillary thyroid seems to have, there may be a role for serafinib and probably sutent in papillary. Why are we worrying so much about papillary renal cell? It sort of begs the question, like Jan said, we may be splitting too much. 
So I need the third opinion here in terms of this man presenting with asymptomatic pulmonary emets eight months after his primary, Dr. Vogelsang. How would you think it through? I assume that he has a good performance status, that he has a normal calcium, normal LDH, normal hemoglobin, that he's got relatively small volume disease. I never can figure out if this would be two sites of disease or one-sided disease. I'm assuming it's one site, and therefore his only poor risk feature is the short interval. So he would be a good risk, or at least intermediate at worst, category by the memorial criteria. I always offer the IL-2. In Chicago, I could send him down the street to Loyola, in Nevada, there's no one in town doing high-dose IL-2, so it's rare that people even take me up on the offer, although I have my colleague David Quinn, 45-minute flight away. And then I would agree with Ron, and I would discuss with the patient both drugs, actually. I would say that, and now as of today, I have level one evidence that sunitinib is better than interferon, and since my standard has been interferon, I would say now sunitinib is the favorite on the basis of level one evidence. But if you look at the waterfall plots, the same 70% or more of patients become stable or partially or have minor responses with both drugs. I suspect we'll never know which one is a better drug. What are your thoughts in terms of the tolerability of the two? Well, as we talked earlier, I have become a little less comfortable with serafinib. The skin rash and the skin toxicity can be annoying and bothersome, particularly to elderly patients when they have hands that don't work well. It's a dramatic daily reminder that they're ill. And so Sutent, even if they may have some fatigue or some stomatitis or some mild anemia, can be sometimes easier than the serafinib. It's highly individualized if you're talking about off-protocol. Let me remind my colleagues on either side here of the statement I made this morning about the gold standard in the treatment of this disease. Although complete response is certainly a desirable endpoint, the frequency with which you see it with IL-2 is so low as to preclude that being the standard. The standard has to be the surrogates of progression-free survival and survival to choose a drug to treat the large volume of patients with. And so I think it's legitimate to offer patients IL-2, but I don't believe it should have a major role in the treatment of this disease, given the fact it doesn't improve survival, it doesn't improve progression-free survival in the patients that have been studied and where it's been looked at in a randomized setting. So I think we can't have a double standard here. We have level one evidence. We have to go by it. We have to use that as the way to approach the disease right now. Dr. Dutcher, how would you think it through if the patient were 83 as opposed to 63? If he were 83, I would definitely watch him. First of all, I think it would have been a longer disease-free interval because my sense is that the disease grows slower in older people. But 80-year-old people, I've had watching lung mets grow for more than five years, and you get a CAT scan, and it's like an onion ring has grown around. It's just one more layer. But they may not be symptomatic for many years. You watch it, and what would it take without the patient getting symptomatic in the 80-year-old range to start thinking about treatment? Well, if you get a scan in three months and the lung mets are double, I think you're stuck. You have to start treatment. But if they're a little bit bigger, you can't even see a difference, but at six months you can see a difference, I think that patient you can monitor for quite a while. Only because once you start these drugs, you have to keep going. And if you're thinking that this person's got multiple years of asymptomatic metastatic disease, putting them on a drug for six months or a year or whatever may not be really a great option. So it doubles in three months. What would you be thinking about? Well, then I would think of one of the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. How would you choose? 
How would I choose? I would look at the comorbidities, the other medical problems. For example, if they were in the core risk group, you'd want to try CCI779 mTOR inhibitor. Are they diabetic? Do they have lipid problems? Because those are issues with that drug. On the other hand, it's intravenous, so you don't have to rely on the patient to be able to take their pills and keep track of their pills, which is an issue for older people. If they are a candidate for an oral medication, in some ways I like serafinib because you can back off on the dosing more easily than you can with the sunitinib. And it doesn't have the fatigue factor that sunitinib has. What I'm saying, I think, is I'm making a decision more based on toxicity than I am on efficacy because we do know that serafinib has a progression-free and probably a survival advantage in the second line. And it's approved for advanced renal cells. So I think you can give either one of those two drugs based on that. Dr. Vogel saying Dr. Dutcher talked about other comorbidities. What about cardiac history and what's the deal in terms of what sunitinib and cardiac toxicity? This patient had hypertension, so he's at risk for both, and I've seen hypertension with both. I don't think you're going to get away from the hypertension problem with any of this class of drugs. It was interesting that the axinitinib had apparently even more hypertension than sunitinib. Certainly, serafinib had mild hypertension, but yet when you look at all of them, they're roughly a class effect. Dr. Bukowski, can you talk a little bit about what we know about the cardiac effects of sunitinib and what kind of cardiac history would get you to hesitate? The patients we treated in the phase three studies and in the phase two studies with sunitinib were generally selected to avoid risk factors that might predispose to further cardiac problems. When they looked at the GIST data in the randomized trial where sunitinib was given at the same dose and same schedule, there's about a 10% incidence of ejection fraction abnormalities that develop in these individuals. And there have been some cases now of congestive heart failure. They're pretty uncommon, but they can occur. Those ejection fraction abnormalities seem to return to baseline when you repeat them in about two to three weeks. And so their meaning and their importance is not clear at this juncture. But I think as we start to treat more people in the community who have risk factors, who have cardiac disease, we have to be somewhat vigilant and look at these individuals to be certain that you're not going to have a person who develops increasing problems with sunitinib. So the issue is, would you get an ejection fraction routinely in these patients? No, the FDA didn't require it in the package insert. It wasn't an issue. I think if you are treating somebody who has a history of CHF or who has significant cardiac risk factors, you should take this into account and consider that option. I'm not saying you shouldn't treat them. I just think you need to be cautious as you treat them. I hypothesize that, in fact, it's a class effect of this kind of drug and that it's a vascular effect that's happening, and it appears to be reversible. But we're going to find out because in the adjuvant trial that's just opened, which is sunitinib versus placebo and serafinib versus placebo, there is a cardiac monitoring component to that clinical trial, and all patients will be getting serial MUGA scans. Just anecdotally, I've had a patient with a vast and have an exacerbation of CHF with that being the only drug. I think it's going to be something that we'll see more of. I suspect we do already have a lot of data. The serafinib and sutent SAE files continue to fill up my office. I mean, I must sign 50 a week. I don't think that any of us read them anymore, but when you do take the time to look at them, there are some unusual side effects that are occurring, and you look at them and you say, you know, what is that? Is that the drug? Is that the disease? you're going to see some unusual side effects with these drugs. And that's a concern for long-term therapy. You should not launch without being aware that you're going to become busier when you put a patient on one of these oral TKIs. 
So the incidence of cardiac toxicity with serafinib is an important issue because it was looked at, and it's low, but it is real. And it was about 2% of patients had acute MIs who were taking serafinib compared to less than a half percent who were in the placebo arm. So statistically, is that a difference? Well, probably not, but it did raise the bar a little bit for us to look at these issues, and so we're examining very carefully the patients who developed this particular problem. We did not do ejection fractions in the serafinib patients. There was no reason to do it. The FDA is very sensitized to this issue now, and that's the reason for the ejection fractions being done in the adjuvant trial. They're concerned about sunitinib and long-term toxicity in the well patient, and so the issue of following them with ejection fractions is a very relevant and important one. Any speculations from the three of you about potential mechanisms, cardiac toxicity? There's small vessel changes. These are endothelial inhibitor agents, and the myocardium has small vessels. There's certainly not a lot of large vessel data, but like Ron said, there are infarctions, but most of this seems to be a decrease in injection fraction without vascular change. And without evidence of myocardial ischemia or damage. And it's reversible. And it's actually very similar to the type of, well, we don't know that it's very similar, but the pattern is similar to what's been seen with trastuzumab, where there can be a decrease in injection fraction. But that component of giving breast cancer treatment is actually the reversible component. So it's a different kind of toxicity. I want to get some follow-up on this patient, but before I do, Dr. Dutcher, you talked about CCI779 and the plenary paper that was presented here. Can you summarize what that agent is and what was seen in the trial? CCI779 is an mTOR inhibitor. mTOR stands for mammalian target of rapamycin. It's a key cell cycle protein that, when it's activated, induces pathways for cell proliferation, pathways for angiogenesis, and protein synthesis. It's triggered by growth factors and by nutrients. It has an effect on glucose and lipid metabolism. So a very important key molecule in the cell. And it's upregulated in many tumors and constitutively on. So drugs that inhibit mTOR have been shown to, in fact, inhibit tumor growth. And CCI779 was tested in the poor-risk patients based on some phase 2 data that suggested that the poor-risk renal cell patients did unusually well in the phase 2 study, and they did better than would have been predicted by the Sloan-Kettering model or some of the other models. So that's why in this study it was interferon versus CCI779 versus a combination regimen that required that both CCI and interferon have slightly lower doses. And there was a statistically significant benefit in terms of progression-free survival and survival comparing CCI779 to interferon alone. And Dr. Vogel saying if this agent becomes available, how do you think it would be integrated into the algorithm in a non-protocol setting? I think it's going to be a very interesting addition to the treating oncologist's armamentarium for simply the reason that somewhere between 20 or more percent of patients are poor risk. Depending on your location, I suspect in New York it's fewer, but in the south side of Chicago and in the west, I think there's more poor risk patients. Probably they just don't go to their doctor as much. Who knows? These poor risk patients are very challenging. They're sick. They have organ dysfunction and a relatively simple IV drug, and maybe the Novartis drug will even be available orally soon, would be a big addition. It's not bad. The fact that mTOR does control the lipid amino acid efflux or influx is going to have some problems with the diabetic patients. The lipids do go up. There's some skin rash, but it'll be an interesting addition, and we'll obviously be wanting to look at it in combination with the VEGF inhibitors and other agents. 
Dr. Anderson, can you follow up with what's happened with this man? Sure. Well, back in November of 2004, I didn't have all the options we have today. So I talked with the patient at length about what his wishes were. Observing him without treatment was not an option. He was nervous without cancer. Once the cancer was back, there was no way in the world he was going to do anything that didn't involve treatment. I talked with him about high-dose interleukin-2. My experience has not been good. I didn't encourage him to do that. He didn't really want to go someplace for high-dose IL-2. We were preparing to open the TARGETS trial, randomizing to serafinib versus placebo in the second-line setting. So knowing that he had to have failed or become intolerant to a cytokine to be eligible for that trial, I gave him interferon. He had three and a half months of interferon with an ultimate dose of nine million units three times a week. And at the end of three and a half months, had stable disease, but had what the patient and I considered intolerance to interferon. He was extremely depressed. He was not sleeping. He lost about 10 pounds, had anorexia, and I thought that constituted sufficient intolerance to take him off interferon. And I entered him onto the randomized trial of serafinib versus placebo, and he actually had a minor response, about a 20% shrinkage of his three lesions, which lasted 14 months up until about a month ago. What kind of side effects or toxicity did he experience? He had virtually none. His hypertension remained well controlled without changing his medicine. He had no hand, foot, or rash, minimal GI symptoms. He said he had more frequent bowel movements, but no real diarrhea. He told me an interesting story. Maybe you could relate it to the group in terms of him calling the NCI. The trial was unblinded in May of 2005, but he was so nervous about being on placebo, since this was a placebo-controlled trial, he was trying to go around me and call the NCI, call the trial sponsors, and make sure he was getting active drug. He didn't want to be on a placebo trial, which is a real issue in the States regardless. But that was while he was being treated. Yeah, he actually was on active drug, but he didn't know it. And right. since he had no side effects virtually, he thought he was getting placebo. <laughs> I just thought that was a fascinating commentary on this new generation of agents, that the patient was nervous that he was getting a placebo. We had the very same experience in Mark Rutain's randomized discontinuation trial. It was a 60 patient about. And one of my patients who went on that randomized discontinuation trial was not sure but he had anticipated it. I'd told him about the randomized trial coming up. He had deliberately underdosed himself and saved a sample of pills so that if he didn't think he was getting serafinib, he would be able to take it surreptitiously. I mean, this guy's a lawyer and sort of knew what he was doing. It turned out that he could tell by hair loss. That's how he knew. He had complete hair loss with serafinib. And so he figured that if he didn't get serafinib in the randomized discontinuation, that his hair would grow back. That's the sort of thing you get with the placebo-controlled trials. I'm just kind of curious, trying to tease out from you all, you know, how often do you see that with serafinib versus sunitinib, the patient just coasts through it? We had 23 or 24 patients on the same trial that you were speaking about, the serafinib versus placebo trial. And we tried to guess who was getting what. And the doctors were wrong in half the cases. We were well-blinded. So I think, at least in that setting, and that was before we really became very attuned to some of the side effects, some of the nuances of the side effects of serafinib. I think now you look for these in a much more intensive way and you find them. But at that point, we couldn't tell. We had people who had hand-foot syndromes who were getting placebo. So it was a very strange thing. That's why placebo-controlled trials are so interesting and so valuable in the evaluation of an oral agent like this. Is it just as common with sunitinib to have patients coast through? We've never done a placebo comparison. They did it with a GIST study, and they have the data there comparing it to placebo. But in renal cancer, I must say that most everybody has some side effect, whether it's mild or such. But I mean, enough that it interferes quality, like, for example, fatigue. No, no, I don't think it interferes with quality of life. I don't think you can say that the drug really impairs 
functioning for these people. I think they can get through this. It's not that level of side effects. What I usually say is about a third of people have enough toxicity that you're fiddling around and adjusting their doses. You may get them on a lower dose or a couple of day holiday or something like that, and then you get to a plateau where they can function with both drugs. And do you find that people feel differently when the two weeks they're off sunitinib than when they're on for the four? Yes. And what do they tell you? I think mostly the fatigue. Fatigue. They they just don't feel as tired. But they're also nervous that the tumor may grow back in those two weeks. We find patients that adjust their own medications. This is going to happen with these oral drugs. They will, when they start to develop some of these symptoms, hold off or not take Take the drug that day and take it the next day. This is commonly seen now. So they're kind of treating themselves at this point. And they're doing it by using their side effects as a measure. Some of them are concerned about recurrence of symptoms and disease growth so that they won't do it, but there's a segment out there who are clearly adjusting their own drugs. Now, what about the second-line situation? Now, this patient got serafinib for 14 months, had a minor response, and I guess did well for 14 months and then progressed. Dr. Vogel saying, what are your thoughts about therapy at this point? I think it's almost certainly going to be switched to a different agent. If we had a protocol open, he would go protocol. Our current protocol is with PTK, but if there was no protocol, I would switch him over to Sutent and see if he gets a response. I'd like to be a little bit more creative than that, but if that was what I had, that was what I would do. What do we know about responses to sunitinib after serafinib and vice versa? I think Ron and Brian Reaney from Cleveland Clinic have really reported the first data that I think is reasonable. Brian reported just this afternoon, a couple hours ago, about bevacizumab refractory patients. I'm not certain that's the right word, but it was within three months of having bevacizumab. Response rate was excellent. It did not appear to me to be statistically inferior to patients who'd not had bevacizumab before. Ron, you were on that abstract, so you probably know that data more than I do. But there were five patients who had had, I believe, a prior response to bevacizumab, and when they went to sunitinib, three of those had another partial response. So they're clearly not completely cross-resistant. Well, you're talking about Bev to a TKI. What about TKI to TKI? That I don't know. Ron? The only data we generated were in patients on the various compassionate studies looking at people who had had sunitinib and progressed and likewise those who had serafinib and progressed. And we found a collection of individuals who responded a second time to a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. I think it clearly happens. I don't think that the mechanisms of resistance that conceptually we think of in terms of operating in chemotherapy are the same here. So these are anecdotal data, and I think they should be treated as such, but they need to be verified. You need to look at this in a more formal phase two setting and to pick patients like this individual who progresses on serafinib and then treat him with sunitinib and determine whether his response will be. If I'm in the community and I have no other options, I treat him with sunitinib at this point in time. What are you thinking, Dr. Henderson? That's exactly what I did. I started him on sunitinib, full dose, and so far, four weeks out, he's tolerated it well. Too soon to talk about response. So he tolerated both of these agents well, at least up to this Very well, point. surprisingly so. And actually, he feels a lot better. He's sleeping. He's not calling me all the time that he was before. Dr. Dutcher, what about bevacizumab right now in a non-protocol setting for renal cell cancer? Well, bevacizumab has activity, as we saw today in the abstract that Ron presented. The biggest problem with that drug is reimbursement. So we actually do use it off protocol for some individuals, but we have to get financial clearance to be able to utilize it because of the expense. If these drugs were all equally available, say the CCI and bevacizumab, would you use that in preference to another TKI inhibitor in this point? In other words, if you were sure that bevacizumab would be covered, would you? I think bevacizumab is a good drug. I think it does work. 
But I don't think the evidence that we have that I showed really at this point is enough for me to tell you to use it in the untreated patient. I think we have other drugs, clearly, which have demonstrated effects. I think bevacizumab should be studied further to isolate its effects. I really do. It's just such an expensive drug. If cost were no issue, could you use it without regard and say, well, it's effective? Perhaps in that setting, you know, if we weren't dealing with $100,000 a year for this drug, which is really an issue. And do you think the combination of these two agents is going to have double the toxicity for hypertension and that sort of thing? I mean, there's always a potential of that, I would yes, think. Yes, so. I think it may. I mean, I think we'll end up decreasing doses of each one of these agents in order to give them together. So it's not going to be an easy situation. I agree. Yeah. Dr. Dutch, what about the issue of the first line versus second line versus third line in terms of response to anti-angiogenic therapy? In breast cancer, we didn't see much effect of bevacizumab in late line, second and third line therapy, pretty prominent effect in first-line therapy, a lot of speculation about as the tumor develops more angiogenic factors. What do we know about this in renal cell cancer? We don't know anything (laughs) about it. We really don't. I mean, I think that we're at the point where we don't have other options. We're not combining it with chemotherapy, so we're going to do exactly what happened with this patient. We're going to try one and take it as long as it'll work, and then try the next one. We're going to try to develop some combination studies, whether that's going to be a better treatment or not. We just really don't know. I think it's a brave new world, and it's a lot of excitement, but I think we do not know yet how to sequence these drugs. I agree that I think we're going to see activity in serial use of these drugs. We're participating in a study of the Agaron drug following serafinib, progression on serafinib, and we've had three responses already, and it's very early in the trial. So I think that we'll be able to sequence them. Dr. Henderson, you have a lot of experience with both of the TKIs because of your participation in the trials. What's been your observation in terms of side effects of the two comparatively? I've got a lot more experience with serafinib because of the number of patients I had opened the expanded access trial in June of 2005 and ended up having 40 patients on the trial as opposed to Sutent, expanded access didn't open until about November or so. Different side effect profile, serafinib is more hand, foot, and rash. Sutent, you know, is more fatigue and GI side effects, I think, and I'm seeing some stomatitis and loss of taste with Sutent fairly uniformly. Okay, let's go on to the adjuvant and stage 4 NED setting. I'm going to ask Dr. Hussein to present his case 5, and then Dr. Hart to present his case 5. My patient is a 61-year-old man who actually presented to his physician with lower abdominal pain. At that time, he underwent multiple testing, including a colonoscopy, and a CAT scan showed a 2-centimeter mass in the right kidney. He underwent a right partial nephrectomy, and that revealed a clear cell carcinoma grade 1 with negative margins. CAT scan of the chest and abdomen and bone scan, they were all negative for metastatic disease at that time. Unfortunately, 10 months later, in spite of it being grade one and very good prognosis, he had a two by one centimeter new nodule in the right upper lobe of the lung. At that time, he proceeded to metastatic workup and everything was negative except for the solitary two by one centimeter nodule. He underwent resection of that nodule with negative margins. The question is what to do with this patient after a pseudo-NED stage 4 renal cell cancer. Can you talk a little bit about the man, his life situation, and what his thoughts were about this? This guy was a businessman. He owned his own business, working with his wife. His performance status was always really zero, except for the lower abdominal pain, which I, we all know it wasn't really related to this mess. It must have been some diverticular disease. And when he recurred, it was only picked up because of the three to four month CAT scans. 
It was found with absolutely no symptoms, very mild hypertension. He was on an ACE inhibitor once a day. Is he the kind of person who's out on the internet and trying to find information and bringing it back to you? Or is yes. he more like, you tell me what to do, doc? No, absolutely. He's a very well-educated man whom before the last several months would not consider actually receiving anything because of interferon and interleukin. Okay, I want you to kind of keep this patient in mind, and let's hear about Lal's patient. My patient is a 63-year-old female who I recently consulted on about three weeks ago in the hospital. She had presented to her family physician with some voiding difficulties, had a urinalysis done which showed hematuria, had a CT scan done which showed a mass in the right kidney which was about four centimeters. It appeared to be solid, and I believe they did an MRI scan, and she had some staging workup done. Was referred to a urologist, a general urologist, who felt that she most likely had a renal carcinoma. She underwent a radical nephrectomy and had a few post-operative problems with electrolyte imbalance and nothing major and gradually improved from that. I was consulted and saw her in the hospital. Her pathology was a four centimeter renal cell carcinoma, which was clear cell with some papillary features. It had no evidence of lymphovascular invasion. As we sometimes see, there was no mention in the pathology report of any lymph nodes, so she was felt by the pathologist to have a tumor which was confined to the kidney. So I evaluated her to see whether she'd be candidate for any type of systemic treatment. And can you talk a little bit about the woman, her lifestyle, and her attitude about this? She was still somewhat ill when I saw her and was not especially interested in systemic treatment, but we had left at that, although she'd been in fairly good shape. She had some mild hypertension and was on treatment for that. She had no major cardiac problems. She had an anxiety disorder and some obesity, but nothing way out of the ordinary. So nothing I thought that would absolutely preclude her being a candidate if there was something available. So Dr. Vogel saying both of these patients come to you, they've got a high stack of things they've printed off the internet, and they want to know about all these new drugs, and should they take them to prevent the cancer from coming back? What would you say to both of these patients about what their future holds in terms of progressive disease and whether anything can be done about it? Well, in both cases, their prognosis is quite good. The first patient with a small primary and with a well-differentiated both primary and metastatic site I would simply resect and watch. The second patient, a four centimeter tumor, unless there were some adverse pathologic features, such as vascular invasion or a nodal involvement or extra, maybe into the fat, this patient would not be a candidate for the adjuvant trial. So I would not treat either one of these with an adjuvant approach, anything other than what's been done. Surgery on the first patient and surgery only for the kidney on the other patient. And can you talk a little bit about the trial that I guess is going to be done by the intergroup? Sure. I believe it's called Assure. It's a randomized phase three, three-arm trial of approximately 500 patients per group. It will be placebo in one arm, one year of sunitinib at the four-week on, two-week off schedule, and one year of serafinib as well. So the tolerability of these drugs will be compared head-to-head in a one-year trial, but also their efficacy, at least as an adjuvant, will be. The devil's going to be in the details, and it's going to be how many true poor-risk patients will enter this trial. The previous adjuvant trials had been a problem because they entered rather good-risk patients, and their power or their endpoints were not very easily defined. They just didn't have enough events. Whether that will happen with this trial remains to be seen. Dr. Bukowski, any predictions on what's going to happen when we try to give serafinib or sunitinib for a year? I don't think we can in this population. I think they'll develop toxicities that will preclude the continuation for a year. There'll be dose changes and dose reductions. I think the trial is 
ill-conceived and not designed very well, given the side effect profile of these drugs. I'm a little concerned about finishing the study. I think we have to try to do it. I, I mean, I don't have any better ideas. Maybe it would have been six months, but whatever the case is, I think Dr. Vogelzang is correct. Will we have enough poor-risk patients in the study to demonstrate the effect? The answer may well be no, because the natural history of this disease is such that although the predictions would suggest they may get a result in seven to eight years, it may not happen. It may well be much longer than that. Whatever the case is, all medical oncologists, urologists, and such really should look at this as a trial with which we should contribute to, because it is answering a very important question, and it will give us a sense of Is one drug better than the other? We may not be able to get that comparison out of a cooperative group. This will give us a sense, though, is serafinib better than sunitinib or the opposite? So it will be an important study to participate in, and we all should do that. Do you think it's possible that this study in the adjuvant setting might actually help people decide what to do in the metastatic setting, sort of the reverse of the normal way? Because it's so difficult to compare these two? It's possible. Yeah, I mean, I think that will be data. But the data, I mean, you and I may be retired by the time we get the information. (laughs) I may be joining you in Fort Myers. Who knows? <laughs> but, but, but I think I think you're right. I think it will help a little bit clarify the situation. If we can't do it in metastatic disease patients, perhaps it will clarify that. You were saying that 70% of the tumors will have some shrinkage on these drugs. So these are very, very active drugs. And I would, if this was breast cancer, you know, we take women with, you know, a 15% risk of recurrence and give them some oral agents to decrease that risk by a couple of percentage, and most of them will accept that. Now, obviously, they may have lower side effect profiles in these drugs. Some of the concerns that have been expressed is that we see very few complete responses, if any, with these drugs. And if we had drugs that had higher frequency of complete regressions, then we might indeed see an adjuvant effect. We may not have that, but I think it's certainly worth the try. We've never had drugs with these kinds of activities in renal cancer before, so clearly across the board, they're the things to apply. The other complicating feature is just that the natural history of renal cell is so peculiar that you really have to try to select patients that are going to recur in a finite amount of time. Otherwise, you know, you're talking about a 20-year study. And those patients may or may not be the patients that go to nephrectomy because they may already be further along and not going to be a good candidate for surgery. It's really quite circular, but we'll try. Dr. Vogel saying the most common adjuvant strategy in clinical trials right now in breast, lung, and colon cancer is looking at bevacizumab, and you know, everybody's trying to speculate, is it going to be more or less effective in the adjuvant setting? What do you think about these TKIs? When you think about the mechanism of action, would you expect to be more or less effective as adjuvant therapy? I think they will be more effective. I think if we have an effect in the metastatic setting, these are generally people with some comorbidities, but they're healthier when they have just had their kidney out than when they have metastatic disease. So if any of these side effects from the TKIs are related to cancer in the rest of their organs, which we know a lot of these side effects somehow are accentuated in those patients, this would be a much more pristine population to give these to. I'm looking forward to the trial. I think it's a better trial than the European trial, which is three years of serafinib versus one year. That's going to be a tour de force if they can get that trial done. Our tissue marker is going to be looked in this, Dr. Bukowski, and where are we right now in terms of trying to look at predictors of response to these agents? I'm not involved with this trial, but I believe they're collecting both plasma and tissue to put away to then look in retrospective way at the predictors of recurrence. I think the best trial design is not this one. I think 
that what the folks are doing in breast cancer and in colon cancer, and that is developing ways of predicting recurrence patterns based on gene expression profiles is probably the way to go in this disease. And I really think the way to identify the high-risk group is that. And there are large tissue repositories where we can do that in very rapid-fire fashion with some of the companies that are now profiling genes and come up with a gene profile that will predict a group who will recur rapidly and then subject them to this kind of trial. And I think we'd get an answer much more rapidly than we would using the TNM and the histologic criteria we have. That having been said, we can't seem to convince anybody to do that at this point, but we're still trying. Dr. Dutcher, what about these agents and other tumors, you know, lung cancer, ovarian cancer, melanoma, these TKIs? I was thinking about a fascinating study that's being done in MD Anderson by the lung people, Ed Kim and Roy Herbst, where it's actually specifically to try to look at tissue predictors of response. Actually, one of the agents is serafinib that they're looking at. Where are we right now in terms of tissue predictors of response to some of these novel agents and strategies to try to get some answers over the next few years? The lead model, of course, is breast cancer, where we've had markers for disease and for drugs with Herceptin. But with the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, it's looking at the pathways, overexpression of AKT, inactivation of P10. There are some things that would tell you which pathways might, in fact, be important. The level of expression of the receptors, the level of expression of phosphorylation of some of the proteins. But I think we're really at the very beginning in terms of being able to go forward with that. The problem is we don't have one gene or one receptor that we have to look at there are multiple here so that you're trying to look at all of these and fit them into this mold and come up with an answer and that's very complex and so it's not the easiest way to come up with an answer as to what's going to predict recurrence because we're really suggesting that there may be three or four proteins that somehow interact that will be a part in this predictor. Probably the best protein right now unfortunately not available as a commercially available antibody is CA9, carbonic anhydrase 9, which seems to predict for IL-2 responsiveness and probably is a marker for the better risk clear cell carcinomas. Keith Skubitz from Minnesota has just published a paper looking at microarray data, not a large series, but the clear cells divide into two basic categories. One that have CA9 as the most upregulated gene and most of the VHL pathway upregulated. And the other one has a much more proliferative pathway upregulated and not as much of the VHL. This may be the VHL non-mutated clear cell variant that we generally think of as not so common. Bin Tay from Van Andel Institute in Grand Rapids has similar data saying that there are the clear cells that are pretty good using whatever model you use. And there's these others that aren't non-clear. They're clear cells, but they have a clearly different molecular biology. Are these assays, is this IHC? Or? No, no, these are microarrays. They're micro looking arrays. at 30,000 genes. I mean, right. 15,000. It's like Ron said, this is almost ready for prime time, but it's still quite expensive. You can't do it readily. What about other tumors in terms of these TKIs? Again, we're hearing things about this melanoma, lung cancer, et cetera. Dr. Dutcher, where is that heading? Well, serafinib was originally thought to be targeting melanoma because of the high expression of BRAF and BRAF mutations, but it turns out that in mutated or non-mutated, there's still some activity. But again, it wasn't as active in the initial screening randomized phase two studies 
in melanoma as the signal wasn't as strong as it is in renal cell. But these are not renal cell-specific drugs. These drugs are going to have activity in other tumors. And probably in tumors that are sensitive to chemotherapy, there's going to be some synergy in combination. And in fact, the studies in melanoma right now, there's a taxol carbo plus minus serafinib study that's ongoing. Both drugs have been looked at single agents in all the solid tumors and are now being taken into combination studies. And so we'll find out. I mean, we've already seen with the Avastin work that angiogenesis is a key to a lot of solid tumors, VHL or no VHL. So I think these drugs will follow in that footstep that they'll be an adjunctive to chemotherapy. What do we know about the safety and toxicity of combining these agents with chemotherapy? It looks pretty good. Certainly the serafinib with Gemzar has been combined in pancreatic patients and other patients. It's pretty straightforward. The taxol carbodata is pretty straightforward. Those are the ones that I'm the most familiar with. I think the mTOR inhibitors are going to be more difficult and, in fact, have already shown themselves to be more difficult to combine with chemotherapy. Neil, I have two patients that I actually referred to Moffitt to Adil Dowd that are on melanoma second line that are either receiving serafinib or placebo with carboplatinum and taxol, and both are responding. I was just talking to him yesterday. And either serafinib may have some activity if they're getting it, or we discovered that carbotaxel may work in melanoma. So we're not sure. Any predictions? I think serafinib may have some activity there. Yeah, the phase two data suggests it had activity, so that's why the randomized trial is being done. The other disease that I think you'll hear more about next year will be hepatocellular carcinoma because there's a large international trial looking at serafinib compared to placebo in patients with hepatocellular cancers. Not that many individuals from the U.S. were entered in that study. It's mostly an Eastern trial, but it will be a disease where there may be some potential for activity of this particular What's cancer. been seen in that tumor in terms of phase one and two? You know, very little data. I don't think there are very few patients with phase one. But there's some activity of it, and I can't tell you the degree of activity. I think it probably was better or equivalent than chemotherapy. Chemotherapy standard being, what, doxorubicin in hepatocellular cancer. So I think there clearly was some hope from pharma that that disease might be one that they would target with serafinib. We were talking about some of the biologic considerations. What about in hepatoma and melanoma? What do we know about the biology of those tumors in terms of maybe being sensitive to these kinds of agents? I don't think we know too much. In the large, what was ultimately the randomized discontinuation trial of RETAIN, where over 500 patients were entered, it was really a large number of tumors. I remember at least one of my mesothelioma patients went on the trial and had a what appeared to be a minor response. He had a pneumonia intercurrently and had to go off trial. But we've been hearing sporadically about these TKIs in a wide variety of tumors. I know they presented sunitinib in breast and serafinib in melanoma. We saw velatinib in mesothelioma. It's going to just sort of creep through the world of oncology. And all of us believe that each one of these drugs will have its partner chemotherapy agents that are favored. And whoever is likely to get the first phase three out is likely to stay linked to that chemotherapy. So the carbotaxol serafinib is likely to be a winner, so to speak. Even if zunitinib carbotaxol was done, it's carbotaxol serafinib is the first one on the street. And that's probably what we'll see. What about the combination of these agents with bevacizumab, Dr. Bukowski? Well, they're both being looked at in combination with bevacizumab. 
The studies with serafinib are much farther along, and they've been done in renal cancer also and in phase one settings at the NCI. And I think Jeff Sossman reported the data here with regard to the combination. There clearly is a lot of interest in it, but the toxicity was somewhat troublesome. I think they have to come up with reduced doses. I didn't see Jeff's presentation, but I believe he had to reduce doses of serafinib in order to avoid the hypertension that would develop in the setting. Sunitinib and bevacizumab are under investigation at several centers right now in a very cautious way, trying to look at that combination. I think we all would like to see the combinations of these two agents move forward in disease, but I think we're doing it in a very cautious way. I think we're going to run into a problem with renal cancer patients soon where there will be this multiple combination being looked at along with some phase three studies in progress where there may not be sufficient patients to answer the questions. I think we've not there yet, but we're down close at this point in time with our population. So I think we have to pick our combinations quite carefully in terms of how to evaluate them. Dr. Dutcher, what about using these agents in a non-protocol setting for adjuvant therapy? I would not recommend it. So far, nothing we've had in renal cell has in fact translated to benefit in the adjuvant setting. I would not recommend it in that setting until we have some information about both tolerability, perhaps efficacy in the trials. Anyone disagree? I don't know. I have one very educated person whose tumor spilled intraoperatively. Try as we might, we couldn't see any tumor. We tried to get him on a variety of trials. He ultimately went back to his oncologist in Southern California, and the oncologist and I talked about bevacizumab or lotinib. He was placed on bevacizumab or lotinib by this oncologist. I have no idea how he's doing, but you know, this is a very well-informed, very thoughtful person who knew he had microscopic disease left behind, and that would not be eligible for any of the adjuvant settings. So I can see where individually there's going to be some decisions made on this sort of patient. I think they'll be used. I mean, I think you gentlemen will use them in patients who you consider at really high risk for residual right. or recurrent disease. I think disease. the patients will demand, a very high risk patient who's not eligible for study, if it's an oral agent and it's not going to be fatal toxicity in very many cases, very high risk younger patient, I think is going to demand it. I don't know how you can avoid this. I mean, I think with interferon it was easier because that drug has a lot of side effects. These drugs are easier to give. So I think you'll select the situations where you believe the risk of recurrence certainly is high. And certainly in patients who have multiple metastatic sites resected, I think that's another group where this will be done. I mean, we get calls all the time about doing this. I usually maintain the high road and say, gee, I don't have any data to suggest that you should do this, but, you know, you're there and you've got to make the decision. <laughs> Plus, they right. turn around and say to you, what would you do? What would you do? If this was you, what would you do? So, I mean, I don't know how we can say it won't happen. They're going to be used, and the only problem is we won't know how to evaluate results here, and only the adjuvant trial is going to give us that answer. So what would you do with my patient after he's had his second adrenal removed? Is it time to start one of these drugs? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a more complicated setting because you don't even know how to adjust his replacement therapy if he gets stressed or starts having profound diarrhea from one of them. Although, as Lowell was commenting on, every day these people are starting adromycin and cyclophosphamide on breast cancer patients at 10% risk of recurrence. Right. 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 So clearly, obviously, we have data for that, but in terms of toxicity and the downside, also the ability to stop the drug, I guess, if the patient's not tolerating it. Any patients you've seen in the last couple of years, Lowell, who in retrospect, maybe if you saw them today, you'd start one of these agents? Well, my other case was a T2N1 that was resected in 1997 when he was about 50 years old, who just walked into my office earlier this year with having not seen him 
for three or four years with a big lump and said, what's this lump here? And that was recurrent renal cell cancer, and he's got liver and bone mets. So if I saw someone like he was, <laughs> the retrospectroscope, he would have been certainly somebody that would have been So now you know you're good for that. though, of course. Right, I, and of course, now I have the retrospectral so advantage. Would you consider all N1 patients sort of a potential for this kind of therapy, or would you... I mean, I would I mean, encourage yes. you to offer them the study. First. Yes, I would offer them the study. I would say, personally, having used a bit of these drugs on trials and things, and now in a couple of metastatic patients, I would not have a problem if I had somebody who was, say, 50 or 60 who was a resected N1 patient. If it was me, I would definitely take the drug. So I the cooperative groups could certainly develop a protocol in resected metastatic disease. Right. Because we don't see enough of them at any single institution, but... Right. In aggregate, certainly among sure. people, we see enough of them to answer that question with regard, not necessarily survival, but progression-free survival in a short order, at least to demonstrate some efficacy in a setting of advanced disease that's been resected, and that would be a very useful thing. Or could they allow them into this study, or the current study, could they allow them into that? Are they allowed them? Uh, no. Or would that mess no. up their statistics, possibly? We tried to talk them into that eligibility, have it a separate stratification factor, but it's a very different disease. Right. How far out... What was their primary pathology, right. you know, like a two-centimeter yeah. tumor like you had? That's going to be hard to argue as poor risk. Even after resection, it's probably still very good risk. So, Nick, you have an N1 tumor yourself. What do you think you would do? I'm thinking what I've done is submitted a proposal for adjuvant Avastin. I would like to try adjuvant Avastin in these patients. I think it's a little bit more controllable. The toxicity is less, and that's what I would like to see more of. But... I can't get that data yet. So the logical argument that makes me not as excited about using these ad hoc in the adjuvant setting is if the mechanism is anti-angiogenesis and the principles of when does that kick in is with one centimeter tumors and you're doing a CAT scan that shows nothing, then do those cells need angiogenesis to survive? They probably don't. They're probably stem cells that are dormant and you may just be slowing down their time to developing angiogenesis. Although, you know, that's what we thought about breast cancer, too. And You can't convince the breast and the lung doctors. We have a lot of patients on CO8, which is the NSABP, right. adjuvant Avastin for Fulfox Avastin for colon. So we have many right. patients in that study. So how long will you give this drug for somebody who you're going to treat outside of a study? One year or six one year. months or just one year empirically? And mm-hmm. I think that's all you can do at this point. I would follow whatever the trial was. I guess the yeah. trial is a year. So yeah. at least then... If I'm going way off the chart, I'd like to do it similar to the trial. But Janice's point is a good one. I mean, this yeah. may well be a suppressive drug and right. not something that's going to cure the patient. So that's you may correct. have to give it like forever. tamoxifen, right? you know, forever. So, and I don't know that be. they'll take it forever, but, but yeah. at least you'll get some sense of that as you start to treat some of these people and you right. see recurrences. Although there's been a lot of interesting discussion related to bevacizumab in lung, colon, and breast cancer about how it's really working and whether it really is purely an anti-angiogenic mechanism or in some way facilitating delivery of chemotherapy. What do we know in terms of renal cell, in terms of whether or not this actually is the reason we're seeing tumor regression? These agents have lots of different effects. There are VEGF receptors on the tumor cells, Right, exactly. Like. So there may be a direct anti-tumor inhibition, but you know that's an early hypothesis, but there is some demonstration of that. So that would speak to using it in the adjuvant setting. Right. In mesothelioma, there's a series of experiments both in vitro and in animal models, suggesting that VEGF is in fact an autocrine growth factor, that it's not acting through the angiogenic pathway, and that the VEGF is itself a growth factor for mesothelioma cells. So there may be a variety of tumors that have this as a primary autocrine growth factor. 
I want to go to Bill's case away from the systemic again, just to take a little breath here. Okay. This is a 74-year-old man who underwent in the fall of 2003 a diverting colostomy for diverticulitis. After he was recovering, he was noted to have some worsening renal function with a creatinine of 2.2 and was referred to a nephrologist. The nephrologist ordered a renal ultrasound, which showed bilateral renal masses. Bilateral renal biopsies both revealed clear cell carcinoma. In June of 2004, he underwent a laparoscopic cryosurgical ablation of the renal mass on the side that had the smaller tumor. And then six weeks later, in late July of 2005, he underwent a laparoscopic left radical nephrectomy and pathology revealed a seven centimeter clear cell carcinoma confined to the kidney with negative nodes. His creatinine rose to around the 3.0 range He's been subsequently followed asymptomatic. He has required some erythropoietin therapy, and his creatinine is stable at 3.3. He had a recent MRI of the abdomen that was negative, and he's basically asymptomatic and carries on his normal activities. Dr. Vogel, can you comment on this and the whole issue of nephron sparing surgery? How big was the cryoablation tumor? Was it fairly small? Sounds like it was It was the smallest tumor, yes. Yeah, I mean, this man is at risk for hyperfiltration renal failure. And laparoscopic nephrectomy probably depends on the location. Seven centimeter is hard, but we should be thinking more and more about trying to spare the renal function. Andy Novick's plenary presentation at the Society of Urologic Oncology was very good. He said, you know, this, we as oncologist internists have to think about the long-term implications of a person with a creatinine of two to three like this. This man, if he does develop metastatic disease, is going to have a complicated and difficult course. It's going to be hard to treat him well. Having said that, I would just give you an anecdote. I do have a lady on dialysis with both kidneys taken out for non-metastatic at that time, now has metastatic disease, and is responding to serafinib. I had to dose reduce her. I started her off at only 200 a day, and with that, her diastolic pressures were quite high, hitting 113 on one occasion. But she's had a response and so far well tolerated. So I believe we can give these drugs in the renal-impaired patients. Cancer Leukemia Group B has a renal dysfunction trial underway. Anthony Miller is leading it. And I know there's about five or six sites looking at patients with both renal and hepatic dysfunction. I just started a patient with cirrhosis and metastatic renal cell. Pretty bad cirrhosis, and I don't know what I'm going to do. Got some nice patients in Las Vegas. Oh, there's some sick patients. What are you treating the patient well, with? Well, the second one with cirrhosis, because he is so symptomatic from his liver, he's got cirrhosis and liver metastases, and in pain that I started him on sunitinib. What dose? 37.5. I dropped him down a little bit. We'll see if I'm going too high. He started last week, but... Organ dysfunction patients are very challenging. Well, the drugs are obviously more metabolized and or inhibited by activation of enzymes in the liver. Right. Cytochrome P450 enzymes, so you have to be careful with those drugs. But there's data for both drugs in renal failure patients and right. in dialysis patients. I'd like to ask the question, practically speaking, since I have only just prescribed sininib for the first time. It comes in different doses. Because it's so expensive, do you choose to use multiple pills so you're able to dose reduce, or do you start at the higher dose? Do you do the 50, or do you... Prescri- like you can't do 37.5 if you decide to change if they have a month of the they highest They're dose. stuck with the 50. Yeah. I think what people will end up doing is getting the 12.5 milligram tablets and then adding pills 
or 25. You know, we use the 25s and 12.5 so that you have a little bit of leeway in terms of starting at 50, and then if you need to dose reduce, you can go to 37.5 or 25. That mm. gives so them you a recommend bit. not starting at the highest dose? Even No, we start the at the highest dose. We start at 50, but, but we'll use, do it. You don't use the 50 milligram We don't pill. use the 50 milligram tablets. Okay, that's, that's what, what I wanted that, to know. That having been said, most people in that first cycle will get through with the 50 milligrams. Yeah. Okay, you only give them one cycle of medication they'll likely get through. And then as you dose reduce them, the dose reductions will occur over the next two to three cycles. But you'll have to write a script for every cycle. Yeah. I think this points out that these drugs can be used in these organ-impaired patients. They clearly are opening up a segment of patients who we've never treated before with the cytokines. Your experience clearly, and we get calls about this all the time, and I usually say, well, I think with serafinib you can give this drug in the setting of renal failure. With sunitinib, I have very little data, if any, that tells me you can, but people are using it out there right now in this setting, and because they're metabolized in the liver and not excreted, they generally can be given here. The recommendation that we got, because I have a dialysis patient on each of those two drugs, the recommendation was to go start with 37.5 for sunitinib, and the serafinib could be given at full dose. Really? They said full dose? Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. How have you been doing with your full dose? They're both doing fine. On dialysis These people look like your patient that thought it was a placebo. They're doing fine. (laughs) Good. Dr. Henderson, you were mentioning you had a patient just came in. Maybe we'll start with a... Sure. Brand new case. Came to my office Friday. 63-year-old, active, working, high school teacher from 70 miles south of Atlanta who had about a two-month history of just vague malaise, loss of appetite, ultimately some right upper quadrant discomfort and fullness and early satiety. Went to his local physician who obtained an ultrasound of his gallbladder, which showed gallstones. They sent him to a surgeon at my hospital who found a very enlarged liver and noted probable jaundice and obtained a CT scan of his abdomen, which showed a very enlarged liver with a heterogeneous pattern of probable metastatic disease in the liver and a very large right kidney mass measuring about eight centimeters. His surgeon referred him to a gastroenterologist to help consider how to get a biopsy. His INR was 1.6, so our radiologist went to a percutaneous liver biopsy, so they did a transjugular liver biopsy, which showed a moderately differentiated papillary carcinoma consistent with renal origin. The guy's got a bilirubin of six. I would estimate his performance status to be two, but he was working up until a month ago. My patient's bilirubin is only 1.6, and you know I have little idea how he's going to handle it. I'm actually more worried about liver dysfunction than I am about renal dysfunction, and I sort of knew the hepatic problem going in. I would probably, given that he has such a impaired bilirubin, I would throw a dart and say try to 12.5 milligrams a day of sinitinib. I have no way to judge that. I do know that he's a Mozart poor risk. If you had mTOR inhibitor available, that would be a nice one to try. So be prepared for him to be in the hospital for a while. Sure. (laughs) What about the papillary histology? To complicate this too, he had a five-vessel bypass surgery in 97 and has reasonable cardiac function now, but that Mm. complicates things further. I don't have any any real clues as to what to do for this gentleman in terms of therapy at this point. Well, Anthony Miller would probably put him on the CLGB trial. That trial is open at 200 every other day of serafinib for the first layer. I don't know if bilirubin of six would allow him to be on, but I know they're looking at 200 a day or 200 every other day. That's the dose level. It's safe, probably, but who knows? One of the package insert warnings was regarding liver function for serafinib. We don't know how it's handled, so you have to be a little right. bit careful here. Yep. So in terms of the papillary, just in general, there in are, the in ask. the randomized discontinuation trial and in the expanded access trial, 
of serafinib, there are definitely responders that have papillary histology. Anecdotally, there are also some with sunitinib. So it's not a contraindication to those two drugs, but his clinical situation may be. My gut would be to either try a very low dose, if you could get him on the trial, fine, or go to gemcitabine. I think there are anecdotal responses to sunitinib in papillary tumors. I don't think there's a lot of them. You can count them. It's like the IL-2 responses. You can count them on two hands. Being facetious, I don't think there's a lot of data that supports it. So to use any one of those drugs here would, you know, there's no data. And I think it depends on the patient and the decisions you make in terms of what you do. Jan's recommendation might not be a bad one, a chemotherapy drug. Yeah, 5-FU has long been used. It's probably the one agent and maybe the antimetabolites have some role as well. Is there some data for Gemzar and 5-FU or Gemzar's Loda combined? Yep, there is. It's pretty toxic, but it does have objective responses, sometimes quite dramatic. And Gemzar alone has some evidence of stabilization, although it's... Give them Gemzar alone or Zolota. I guess the other thing here, in breast cancer, we sometimes look at the situation of a visceral crisis, so to speak, as an indication to use your most effective therapy in terms of producing shrinkage, because you might have one shot and that's it. I wonder if this concept might apply here with sunitinib perhaps producing more response rate than serafinib, which is more stable disease? If he had clear cell cancer, I'd tell you to do it. I think that would be worthwhile then to give it a shot, because we've seen very ill patients treated with sunitinib who have gotten out of bed and walked out of the hospital and, you know, were PS 30 or 40, really ill people. The papillary histology just doesn't give me confidence that you'll achieve anything with that drug in this particular setting. So that's the one issue. How old a fellow was he again? 63. Yeah. A year ago, I would refer him to hospice, but now with these drugs, I'm thinking he deserves one shot at something. Well, let us know. Good luck with that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Any questions that you three receive from community-based oncologists that we haven't touched on? The big question for me is always what to do with the brain metastasis. I'd be here to hear what Jan and Ron have to say. In the radiated, presumably they had gamma knife and or surgery, and they're mostly ineligible for the clinical trials. So you have to sort of decide if you're going to treat them with an anti-vascular agent. So those are the questions I get all the time. Is it safe? When is it safe? And if they bleed, what do I do? Well, what I've done is say that if all the metastases have either been removed or and treated with gamma knife, that I see no reason not to use the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. That's the answer I give. I've not had a lot of experience, and I've treated only maybe two or three patients like this. I've so far not had any catastrophic problems but it always makes me nervous. Ron, you probably had more than I've had. Yeah, I mean, we've treated a fair number of people who've had gamma knife already with serafinib or sunitinib. We've only had one patient bleed. He was a physician. He bled twice into a tumor. So it does happen, but it's not that frequent. I think it's legitimate to treat these people with these drugs. And to say that the risk of bleeding is there, but I don't know how to estimate it. I think it's low, but, yeah. you know. Was there anything special about the timing after the gamma knife therapy? You know, not that I recall. Okay. Not that I can tell you. I haven't had any complications. The question is how long to continue these drugs. You know, when you start somebody on these drugs, how long do you continue them? Do you use the traditional criteria for progression as an indicator to stop, or do you continue therapy through progression given what we were talking about in terms of control of growth? And I don't know that that's an answered question. I know Jan is part of a study trying to answer some of these questions, how long to continue the drugs. Our sense is I think we continue them longer than we ever have before. We'll treat patients through progressive disease, and because we have several alternatives in terms of moving from one to the other or to a third, that that very often is what you'll do. But I think the 
likelihood is you'll treat patients longer than you did before, certainly longer than with the cytokines or interferon. I think you'll continue these drugs for a much longer period of time. And I don't know when to tell you to stop them. I mean, that's so you're saying continue through progression without adding anything else in? Well, it depends how you define progression. Remember, we talked about is a enlargement of a solitary single tumor really a criteria to change your treatment if it goes from 20 to 25 percent increase or something of that sort without new disease, without new symptoms? I'm not sure it is. I mean, I think you can continue to use these drugs in that setting. We're trying to define in our own minds what the meaning of these right. criteria are, and I'm not sure I can answer that. For example, one of the other issues is that these drugs cross the blood-brain barrier, and there have been some talk, I don't know if it's been more than just conversation, that these drugs may prevent brain metastases. Another question that's come up in my management of patients has been major surgery. If they're on a TKI and they have to undergo a hip replacement or something like that, what's the appropriate time interval to stop the drug and when can you safely restart? I've looked at it and the answer is that you probably don't have much more than a day or two before you have to stop the drugs, if you must. Obviously, car accidents, things like that, you can't fix, but they recommend a week off and then about three weeks after major surgery. And I don't know if that's got any evidence behind it or not, but that's the current recommendation. Five days. Yeah, we do one week off and then one week after surgery, back yeah. on. That's yeah. it. So that's you're going back in at one. Yeah, we go back in very rapidly. Yeah. And so and we, we. I base that on Keith Flaherty's data. Keith assures me that with serafinib, they have done surgery Right after patients have stopped serafinib but have not had any problems, it started them out rapidly. It doesn't make sense to go three weeks because the drug half-life is long gone. It's it's long gone. We've been much more aggressive in restarting the drug. That's an important point for clinicians because that's completely different than Avastin, where we have between six and eight weeks. It's a much longer half-life drug, Avastin, so you really need to leave the patient off there much longer. With these, their half-lives are measured in, you know, 20 hours, so that when you stop the drug, they'll clear within a few half-lives, so then you can restart them. Very important. Back to this issue of progression in terms of treating through, one of the things that happens with these responses is that you have to look at your own scans. You can't just look at the report where it says it's a little bit bigger because what you'll see is something that's this size as a mass and then it's like, you know, three centimeters and then the next scan it's three centimeters but it's hollow in the middle. And they really shell out. And, you know, I don't know what to call those things, but we clearly see a decrease in blood flow to those tumors, and there's not a tumor there anymore. But Mm. some things can look bigger by measurement, but in fact be empty space. So it's tricky in terms of defining progression. And I agree with Ron. If they're not changing their symptoms and you don't necessarily feel compelled to go to the next drug, I would keep them on and see where we go. It's a good point to look at your own scans because you will notice these cysts developing in these formerly solid tumors. And I think those are responses. I mean, I think what we're seeing is just very necrotic areas that are now becoming cystic. Like like um, just tumors. Like just tumors. And the frequency is not clear yet at this point. We really don't have that down. But you see it in many sites lung, soft tissue, pancreas, bone. So it's important because the radiologist won't be that familiar with these kinds of changes. So if you had a patient that was tolerating these drugs well and they had, say, a 20% increase on scan, you would just leave them on it and there's no new lesions. No new lesions. And I would look at my x-ray just to be sure what you're seeing. But I would leave them on until you're convinced that the disease is truly progressing. We have a new site or a new symptom or such. That's important. Ron and Jan, how do you handle, I think I know the answer, but the proteinuria with bevacizumab can be pretty significant. If you had much trouble with proteinuria with either serafinib or sunitinib, do you handle it any differently? Do you cut back? Any questions on that? 
Hasn't really been a problem. Yeah, not been a problem. Yeah, I've not had much experience. Not, not been a problem. It. I think I've only seen one case where we thought it was related, right. but nowhere near the frequency which you see it with Avastin. Right. In fact, I have a lady transferred up from MD Anderson on Bevacizumab who has five and a half grams of proteinuria, is a unilateral nephrectomy and a partial on the other side, and I just I wouldn't have put her on Avastin. It was an off-protocol yeah. Avastin. You know, now I'm dealing with a lady with frank nephrotic syndrome. So we had two patients in that 104 people that I presented today uh, that had frank nephrotic syndrome. They had to have their drug stopped because of that. Yeah, I, because I, of bevacizumab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. bevacizumab. Yeah. Right.